Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, time is running out for parents. They need to make some decisions about whether or not they're going to send their kids to school. Is it time? And are they ready? Well, we'll get into that in just a couple of minutes. The Canada Revenue Agency suspended their online services after suffering cyber attacks this past weekend. We'll talk about the implications of that. And the Democratic Convention kicks off in the States today. What's in line and what's going to happen with the Biden-Kamala Harris ticket? It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As we've been talking about for many, many days now, uh, time is running out for a plan to be properly implemented for the upcoming school year. Uh, Many boards of education have registration dates coming up in the next couple of days, and parents are going to have to make a decision here whether or not to send their kids to school, keep them home for online learning. It's going to be a tough decision, and it's uh, going to have some serious consequences. We're going to cover it from a couple of different angles uh, on the program today, Uh, starting off with uh, Andy Kidder, Executive Director of People for Education. Andy, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Good morning, Bill. I'm looking out at a beautiful lake, so I'm feeling pretty calm. Oh, perfect. (laughs) Perfect. Well, I'm looking at my bedroom walls here, but I mean, that's fine, too. (laughs) But your your theater of the mind has just rescued me, so we're good there. Excellent. I, I want to keep away from the politics here because you, you're concerned about the education of this, not the politics and the educational elements in this. Uh, you've had a chance to look at what the government is proposing here. They, they had a bit of an add-on to it with some revisions late last week with the, the education minister making some announcements. Uh, are you comfortable with the plan as it is right now heading into to, to September? Well, I think what probably the biggest problem has been the number of times that it's changed. And maybe the other biggest problem, or maybe that's indicative of the other problem, which was that it wasn't a plan made by putting together a task force of, uh, you know, all the best minds or the people with all the experience to kind of wrestle through all the possible problems. And we're seeing this now by, you know, board submitting plans in the province rejecting them. And I think that if we had, and it's still not too late, brought together a task force or a partnership table with everybody at the table, the teachers, the support staff, the directors of education, the principals, uh, students, uh, all the policymakers, people from faculties of education and from health and municipalities. I think we would have been farther ahead than we are now. So what we seem to have now is a bit of sort of cobbling together and definitely a lack of willingness to um, basically to be whatever, crass, spend the money necessary uh, to provide the physical distancing and small classes or bubbles or cohorts or whatever we're calling them um, that will make more people comfortable with sending their kids to school. Because the real worry now is that it, it seems as if that it's quite a large proportion of parents who are saying they're not going to send their kids to school. And that's problematic for a whole raft of other reasons in terms of, you know, um, in terms of equity, in terms of uh, are, are then disadvantaged kids going to be further disadvantaged because of this division? Traditionally, you know, the day after Labor Day is usually the first day of school here in Ontario. Uh, and I, there could be a one-day delay depending on the board for PA days and things of this nature. But this this is not carved in stone. Why are we rushing into this when clearly we haven't dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's? Oh, have we lost her? I guess we've lost Annie Kidder. Well, I mean, she's maybe gone back to look at the lake. Uh, but uh, I wanted to get an answer to that question, obviously, because we're very, very concerned about about the implications of some of these plans and exactly uh, how it's going to impact on students. Part of the problem that, that we find here, too, is uh, 
I don't want to make this a political issue, but it seems oftentimes the government wants to make this a political issue, uh, saying, you know, it's the teachers' unions against the government. And, uh, and, and certainly we've heard from union representatives about this, and there's some concerns. But at the same time, union representatives have a responsibility to, be, to ensure that the workplace is going to be safe for their members. And uh, there's some questions about that, too. Have we got Annie back? Good. Okay. Sorry, I don't know what happened to us, Andy. A motorboat went by and made no, it. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I no, thought I you'd hop. I, I thought you'd hopped onto it for a minute. Yeah, right. I think so. I yesterday I went. I'm going to look and see who is saying that this is problematic. And it's actually it's the Ontario Principals Council. It's the Ontario Public School Board Association and the Catholic School Board Association. It is you know medical officers of health. It's it's not. It. I think in this case, it's actually not just. Uh, two sides fighting each other, the union against the province, which, which you know, people kind of love that nice, simple, easy thing. There are so many people, hundreds of thousands of signed petitions, saying we're not comfortable with this and we want something different. So it was interesting that yesterday or the day before, the Toronto School Board came up with a plan that everybody had agreed to for elementary school, where the school day would be a bit shorter. Um, teachers would just teach continually through the day and then take all their preparation time uh, at the end of the day. And everybody had agreed to the plan. It's like, great, okay, this seems workable. Um, but then the province rejected it. And you go, but they actually worked this out so that kids could go to school, everybody would be safe, the class sizes would be small enough. So I, I think, and maybe ultimately what's worrying, and you're right about, you know, sort of uh, putting this all in this context, is is the politics. Because our, and there's so much politics in education anyway, but when when we're thinking about the politics of winning, rather than educationally, what is best, educationally and from a health and safety point of view, um, it's, it really puts a lot of other problems in there. So that when then when we're listening to politicians of all, you know, from all parties, trying to sort of drill through what they're saying to find to, re- to figure out whether or not, okay, are you just trying to win points here, or do you have an, a viable um, option that you're presenting to the public? And right now, this is all of our kids. Like, you know, this is the whole next generation that we're talking about in Ontario and across Canada. And similar fights are happening across Canada, so... It's not just Ontario's problem, but it would be really great to sort of put the politics aside. And that's why one table that everybody's sitting at would have been very, very helpful. You know, there's an optical thing that I'm having trouble getting my head around here right now. Uh, The government of the day, back in March, decided this epidemic and this virus was so deadly and so concerning, they shut everything down. I I get that, okay? And, Mm -hmm. And I agreed with that decision at the time. So here we are now with an education plan to put the kids back to school, effectively giving them the exact same environment that was too dangerous for them back in March. I mean, nothing has changed here. The virus seems to be under control, but it's still there. And there's an argument to be made that the reason the virus is under control is because we've been social distancing. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not part of this policy. There will be no social distancing in the schools. Well, no, and you had on your news before you were talking to me, they, you know, that the, the concern about the uptick in numbers in COVID is actually yeah. young people partying, partying. Well, guess who goes to high school? Young mm-hmm. people who party. Um, and so, I, you know, I think that, and it does, like sometimes it makes your brain kind of hurt. You go, but there's all these rules for bars. Why aren't there all these rules for schools? And I think that, you know, and that's part of what's making people, it, it makes, 
it's weird enough to be living in a pandemic and to try and understand what that means to you and your life and listening to, you know, Dr. Tam, the, uh, you know, federal officer of health say, well, this is for the long term here. This is not, you know, sadly, this is not going to be gone, you know, in a couple of months. So we, we do need to feel there's some sanity around, okay, if we're thinking about this long term and we're trying to control the virus, but at the same time, we're trying to make sure that kids are getting educated and that all kids are um, and that we're not setting up a system where parents who can afford it can so go, well, I'm just going to make a little private school with my friends and hire a teacher. So we, we and, and the, again, that it's long term, we have to really kind of buckle down and go, OK, how much will this really cost to make sure there are enough teachers, enough support staff and enough space so that we can have that physical distancing, which has brought the numbers down. How do we keep the numbers down? And from all of the the medical experts, it seems you keep the numbers down by continuing to be vigilant. And and it's it, and that's important to everybody. So kids going to school who have, you know, who live in intergenerational families and you know have their aging grandparents. You know, we have to think about all of them. We have to every and this is the one time often teachers and, you know, unions say our working conditions are your children's learning conditions. And sometimes that's just the line. In this case, it's totally true. One hundred percent true. All of the human beings who are going to be in those buildings and we have lots of other buildings we could be using are all in, in the same boat and taking the same risks. And we have to make sure that none of them are taking risks. Um, in ways that that you or I wouldn't. So if, you know, teachers shouldn't be having to educational assistance and kids no longer sit still in roles, look at rows, looking up at the teacher, you know, six feet away. Um, that learning doesn't happen that way anymore. So that's why it's so important and why all the medical people have said, keep the class sizes very, very small, that that's a really good way of controlling the virus. And we're seeing the numbers go up, even in BC, where they've been, you know, really, really diligent. Um, and even in, you know, New Zealand, which actually shut the whole country down in order to uh, keep the numbers down. So we know, we can already see from other places, it's really important to be careful, um, or we're, we're going to have to keep closing over and over and over and over well i i you know i don't want to be the one to say i told you so to the government but i mean you're right every jurisdiction that's tried to do it in similar fashion to what i'm terrorist proposing right now has seen some spikes some of them yeah. very dramatic so uh, i i just hope they're listening anyway there's still some time here to do something andy yeah. it's a pleasure to have you on the program as always thanks for taking some time out of your holidays uh, go oh, back okay. to the lake now I and uh, we'll talk again in a few weeks okay thanks so much, okay, thanks so much. andy kidder yeah. executive director of people for education uh and andy was quite right no matter how you want to take the politics out of it politics is involved in this because these are political decisions just as much as anything else and uh well i know that uh, a lot of people are concerned about this and upset about this i want to bring marit styles into the conversation uh, she of course is the ndp education critic and also the mpp for davenport marit thank you so much for the time glad you could be with us today oh it's great to be here thank you so much this is a cake that is half baked uh, why are we serving it Good, good question. Um, you know, look, I, I, I have to say that I think uh, Doug Ford and Stephen Lecce are, are putting our, our kids' health and their teachers' and education workers' health, you know, and as you said just now with Annie and the community around every school um, in jeopardy here. And, and the only reason that I can find is penny pinching. 
honestly, uh, you know, we know, we know that it will cost quite a lot to, to put in place the measures that we know are so important. And, but what, what Doug Ford and Stephen Lecce have put in place is what I've called a bargain basement scheme, you know, to send our kids back into overcrowded classrooms. And, and there's no way in that situation they can possibly practice the physical distancing that we expect of everybody else. Well, and that's the thing. And, and as I asked a couple of folks last week when we were discussing this program, too, uh, and I'll draw the analogy. I mean, you know, if, if your seven or eight year old goes to the McDonald's on the weekend to get their happy meal or whatever it is they're going to get, uh, they have to practice social distancing. And, uh, and you know, when the, pr- the person ahead of them is finished and pays for the purchases and leaves the counter, that clerk has to clean it. They have to sanitize it before you're even allowed to step forward. And okay, so we've got that. And but what that's fine and those are the rules and that nine year old kid has to follow those rules. But then Monday morning they go back to school, nothing. Forget about social distances. We're nothing about sanitizing. How are they gonna wash hands? Classrooms don't one or two classrooms in a school might have a, a, a sink in there. Right. The rest of the time they're gonna be toddling off to the boys and girls' washrooms all day. Right. And, you know, so many of our schools are already have like some repair issues. And we know that, you know, very few of our schools have enough washrooms to accommodate this as well. I mean, even when you go, you know, to the en route, you're driving around Ontario, stopping an en route, you've got, you know, a sink and then a blocked off sink and then a sink to help people maintain distance. You know, we don't have that right now in our schools. We can't possibly accommodate that with the number of students that are crammed into our schools. So Doug Ford is is putting kids back in like a status quo classroom. And I got to tell you, I am hearing from thousands and thousands of parents who want kids back in school five days a week, but they need it to be safe. Well, and that's it. I mean, I don't know anybody who's saying, yeah, we shouldn't be doing this. I've heard people say we should be delaying this until we get it right. Uh, What what bothered me about this, because we speculated all summer long, and by the way, just <laughs> that's another thing. Why did they wait till August to roll this thing out? Or late July, no if you give them credit. Yeah. You know, they've had months and months and months to put this together. But did they learn nothing from the school boards around North America that tried this before and, and have not succeeded? Yeah. I, you know, I, I've been saying up until very recently that it's it's never too late. We can do it. We can do it. Uh, but I got to tell you, I when they came out uh, at the beginning of August with this so-called plan, I was shocked as much as anyone else, I could not have foreseen that they were going to go uh, backpedal that much from what all the school boards and all the experts really have been saying to them. But look, instead, you know, what Ford has done now is he really has put the start of the school year in jeopardy. And I think um, what we now need to do is be thinking about, you know, what are our priorities here? And and the safety and well-being of our kids has to be a priority. Um, And and then, you know, let's talk about how we bring about the smaller, safer classes, better PPE. You know, another issue that we're going to be talking about later this morning, Andrea Horvath, our leader and me, is is the way they're packing kids into school buses, which is also going to be a really big problem for so many people. Yeah, that's another group I've heard from. One guy I know that called and emails me on a regular basis that has driven a school bus for a few years now, and he, he's very worried about what could happen there. And there's so many other aspects to this, and these are all things that, that clearly they didn't think. I mean, when we saw the devastation that COVID gave to long-term care facilities, one of the factors that we talked about was the fact that an awful lot of those staffers were going from home to home. And the reason they were doing that, of course, is the, the, the pay stinks, so they had to do that just to be able to maintain the course right. of living. But that was spreading the virus. Well, when you start the school year, there's a lot of teachers that are not going to show up because they're concerned, so they're going to be supply teachers. Well, what's going to happen? It's the same thing. Yeah. You know, they're going to go from school to school, and that, that potentially increases the virus and the spread once again. I mean, have we made any concessions for these sorts of things? 
Not really. And I, I mean, I think what's also concerning is that um, school boards have been working really hard over the last bunch of months, you know, as the minister told them to, to come up with plans to make this sort of thing work. And they had some really good ideas. And the government is now rejecting some of their plans at the last minute when because it involves more money. And, and you know, and it involves, uh, well, more investment from the government because all school boards, all their money comes from the government, right? So yeah. so it is, uh, we are way behind. You know, we, we need to hire, we should have been hiring thousands more teachers and education workers, including custodians and bus drivers. We should have been making schools safer with touchless faucets and, and good ventilation. We should be making sure every school had the funding to help and the help that they needed to make sure that our kids could, you know, practice that physical distancing from the moment they get on the bus until they're home. And, and I think what's, you're absolutely right. I think a lot of, um, of the workers who are adults and have their own families and their own issues, and maybe some may even be older or immunocompromised, you know, they're going to be also worrying about their working conditions. So, so this is uh, a problem for our community. And, you know, I always, and I know you know this, like it is also a, a problem for economic renewal because, you know, we don't get better. We don't, we don't start heading up. We don't start recovering until we solve this. And, uh, and I think we're really far away from it right now. We are. Merritt, we got to run. That's, uh, we'll leave it there for there for now, but uh, lots more discussion to come on this. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Take care. Merritt Stiles, NDP Education Critic, of course, and MPP for Danforth. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, the Canada Revenue Agency, CRA, has suspended their online services after suffering from cyber attacks over the last couple of days. Uh, this is going to have significant impacts on an awful lot of people, especially if you're one of the people that might have applied for some of the uh, relief programs that the government is putting out. Global's Tina Trujani reports. Hackers were able to gain access to over 5,000 accounts thanks to something known as credential stuffing, where at least 9,000 passwords and usernames collected from previous hacks of accounts worldwide were used to log in. And the government says the cyber criminals took advantage of the fact that many people use the same password and username across multiple accounts. Cybersecurity expert David Shipley says the CRA needs to step it up. Why didn't they have two-factor authentication enabled for this? It is not hard to set up. It is mildly inconvenient for users, but I guarantee you for those who have had money stolen from them and or fraudulent CERB applications or other things, they would much rather have had that mild inconvenience than the pain they're having today. Senior officials with the CRA and the Canadian Centre for Cybersecurity will be updating the situation later this morning. Tina Trajani, Global News. Thanks, Tina, for that report. Uh, so what are the implications and how does something like this happen? I want to bring Ian Lee into the conversation from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Good morning, Ian. How are you doing today? Good morning, Bill. I'm doing fine, thanks. Uh, we've been warned and warned and warned about this for years now, about passwords and things of this nature. This uh, credential stuffing might be a new phrase for an awful lot of us, but apparently it's a pretty old practice for hackers. It is, and um, this is not um, two big points. Uh, number one, no one should say, well, this is proof we shouldn't be going online. Anyone who thinks that is sort of from the 19th century, I suppose. We're not going back to manual ledgers with pen and pencil. Oh, I hope not. Not, not going to go to it. And I grew. I I started in the bank in the early seventies when we still computed the interest on the savings accounts every quarter, every uh, ninety days. We would uh, close down the bank or at the end of the day, and we'd work late, and we would literally with pencil compute the interest on the accounts. We're not going back to that. Um, your your the person that was being quoted, the expert, uh, was uh, said exactly what I was going to say to you. There's very basic technologies in place called two-factor identification. I have it at Carlton now. I go to the login, 
and I type in my name, password, my username and my password, and then it says, okay, we're going to send you to your cell phone that you've set up with us an a, a, a code. And then you've got to enter the code. It's a, it's a two-factor. First, your username and password. Then you put in the code. And, and yes, it's annoying. <laughs> and by the way, Visa does the same thing. So does my bank. Yeah, so does Chorus Radio, the way where I work. I mean, yeah. everybody seems nothing, to be moving you know, into it's it. Just, it's just one of those things you got to do until they make, And I know there's a lot of research being done right now on passwords and on developing new technologies of passwords, uh, biometrics, face, you know, fingerprints, whatever. Uh, and we will get past this. But um, in the meantime, companies of all kinds, not just financial services companies, all companies, universities, hospitals, anybody where you have accounts set up have to go to two-factor uh, authentication. And then you, you solve the problem. And, you know, you provide at one point, uh, when you set it up, you provide your, you go in and you provide your cell phone or whatever number you want to use. And, uh, and then when you log in, it sends out the, uh, the code to you instantly. And then you just enter it and then away you'll go, you go. And uh, so they were using some pretty primitive um, security technology, and that's just a that's a mistake that they made. And I think that they've learned their lesson, and I'm sure that they will take steps to fix that up so it won't happen again. Well, and we get lazy sometimes. I mean, let's face it, and we all can have all kinds of accounts these days. You know, there could be an email account, a, a Facebook account, a Twitter account, and on and on. And on. So many passwords, and what a lot of people I've talked to simply do is, well, I use the same password for all of them. You know, if your password is password, and by the way, that's one of the first ones the hackers look at. You're not exactly. being that smart. Exactly. Uh, they they just simply took that name, you know, John Doe, and the, that password, and they just throw it out there and see yeah. what sites it sticks to. And it's basically identity theft at this stage, because I guess what these guys did is they applied for the CERB benefit under false names. And somebody whose name they used is going to get a tax bill for that money, even though they didn't really apply yeah. or did yeah. apply and didn't get it. And, and as I said, the silly thing is, is it's very easy to guard against this. I yeah. Mean, I, I use, Bill, I, I really do uh, uh, use this as my sort of acid test, is when I want to know where technology is going in terms of security, I look at the banks and financial institutions. Why? Because they've been in this business for a very long time, long before there were computers. They had a problem with authentication. And, uh, you know, when you have a stranger walking into the branch and say, I'm dealing with another branch. I'm talking 30, 40 years ago. You had the problem of identity authentication. Mm -hmm. It's not something that was just discovered yesterday morning. You know, the same thing with voting. You know, I wrote an op-ed on this in the Globe and Mail about the whole question of uh, identification mm -hmm. because I was very critical of those voter ID cards because they're meaningless, they're useless. I mean, I can, I can make one of those with a, with a color printer. That's how primitive they are. And, uh, and it has nothing to do with voter suppression. It has to do with, you know, identification of who is the person standing in front of you that they claim to be and, uh, or online. And uh, it's something we have to take seriously in all walks of life because there are bad people out there, bad guys out there. I say bad guys because I think they're overwhelmingly male. <laughs> uh, the, the crime statistics show that. The prison statistics show that. And uh, we just have to develop um, more robust measures uh, to guard against this, whether it's healthcare data or it's banking data. And the government should be working with the financial companies because I think they are at the front. They are at the uh, cutting edge, the bleeding edge of technology. They have a better. They have a strong self-interest because they have. There's four trillion dollars on deposit with the six banks in Canada. Four trillion. Mm 
when you got that much money at stake, you take security extremely seriously. So maybe the government should be talking to the banks and saying, hey, can you sort of you know, tell us what you're up to and what you're doing in terms of security? I think that they could learn a lot. Well, sure, and, and uh, like you, I'm surprised to find out that the government didn't have that sort of thing. I, I haven't applied for the benefit, so I wouldn't know much about that. I haven't gone to the webpage uh, aside just to see that it was there. Uh, but if everyone else is doing it, you talk about all financial institutions are doing it. I mean, the government is by definition a financial institution. Yeah. You would have thought that somebody in the civil yeah. service would have said, hey, I got an idea. Why don't we? And, but yeah. they never seem to do that. We adopted it at Carleton, and we're not giving out money to anybody. <laughs> we give out grades, but we don't give out money, if you know what I mean. And we adopted two-factor identification, I would say, three or four years ago. And it's a pain in the butt. You're right. Just, you know, when you're in a hurry, that oh, geez, i got to go through this. Uh, we have another policy at, at Chorus, too, where we have to change our password every number of months. I forget what it exactly. is now. Yeah, and that's a pain. I'm like, I'm, i got to tell you, Ian, I'm running out of names. Okay? <laughs> it's really annoying, that one, because we but, have the same But I understand why they're doing it. It's all I'm, about, I'm running out of names I can remember. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's it's all for security, and I get that. Yes. So I mean, And, and, and if you exactly. say, well, I just don't want to go through this. Well, this is what happens if you don't. Yes. And this happens, and you told us this many years ago when we had this conversation, this happens a lot more than we even know. I mean, this was Canada Revenue, so of course it's big news. But this yeah. happens in corporations, it happens in banks, it happens it in does. people's personal bank accounts. Uh, and a lot of the time they don't even report it because they're too embarrassed uh, because exactly. of the implications. But, you know, it's, the, there's a whole lot of people out there making a whole lot of money because we're getting lazy about this. Yes, exactly. And it's something that we're going to have to spend on. You know, uh, the banks, I uh, got this from the CBA website, Canadian Bankers Association website, and the banks spend over $2 billion a year on IT security. Now, that to me is real money. $2 billion, not $2 million, two with a B. Like, that's a lot of money to ensure, to protect the bank accounts, uh, the integrity of the accounts for the bad guys trying to uh, hack in. $2 billion in Canada alone just by the six banks. So have we... Have we learned a lesson from this? Well, uh, it means that every employer, every organization with an IT infrastructure has to take IT security much more seriously. And unless you're a little tiny business, um, um, you know, a one-person, you know, barbershop or something, um, if you've got your payroll and your company online, which I think is just about every company, you've got to take IT security more seriously. That's the lesson from this. Canadian Anti-Fraud Center says 13,000 Canadians have been victims of fraud, totaling $51 million just the, so far this year. Yes, yes. So it's it's out there. We have to learn something from it. Yes. Ian, always a pleasure. Uh, thanks again for the time today. Stay healthy, and we'll talk again soon. My pleasure. Thanks. Ian Lee from the uh, Sprott School of Business, of course, at uh, Carleton University up in Ottawa. Uh, and be wise about this. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously concerned about what's going to happen here, and I feel bad for the people that have been victimized by this. It's like I say, if they applied for the, some of those benefits, for instance, the SIR benefit, uh, we're using your name and your password. It looks legitimate, and then somebody who is not you got a check with your name on it, and they'll forge their signature and cash the checks, and, and that'll be that. Uh, and you're none the wiser for it until, I guess, about a year from now when the Canada Revenue comes back and says, hey, you got a check for uh, 2000 bucks. Uh, you owe us tax on that. And you say, no, I didn't. And then you're going to get into that wrangle with Canada Revenue about that sort of stuff. So uh, to avoid all that sort of hassle, what we just need to do here is, is be diligent. And Adam Oldfield on Tech Talk has told us that every Friday for as long as we've had passwords to change them all the time because there's always somebody out there who's uh, trolling, trying to find this sort of stuff because it's an easy mark for them and easy money. 
We've talked about all sorts of groups that are being impacted by uh, COVID-19 and uh, what's happened here. And it, uh, in the last, well, eight or nine months in particular, uh, one of the stories that we have touched on recently, of course, the impact that uh, the pandemic has had on those who are dealing in poverty. And, and there's a number of different aspects to this. Uh, one of them, quite frankly, are the tent communities that we've talked about in Hamilton and London and other communities over the last little while. But what other things, what's going on here and how are people that are challenged financially for a whole lot of reasons uh, handling themselves and how are we helping to hand, ha them to handle it? I want to bring Ricardo Trangian in from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives, uh, the Ontario Office Senior Researcher in this play. Ricardo, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. Thanks for the invitation, and good morning. Good to have you with us. Uh, you know, those who are dealing with economic troubles in the best of times uh, are severely impacted when we go through something like this. What, what stories have you heard, Ricardo? Um, yes, what I've been hearing... Um, is about especially folks who are working on the front line of service jobs. Um, what, what we always have to remember is that this is a different kind of recession, right, in, in, in many yeah. ways. And in one of the ways it's, it's different is obviously because it was a government-mandated recession. The government had to shut down um, entire sections of the economy um, because of, of health concerns. But also what that led to was that the jobs that were impacted the most were um, low-wage jobs, um, low jobs that um, didn't necessarily allow folks to, to build a lot of savings, um, that didn't necessarily allow folks to accumulate the number of hours necessary to qualify for employment insurance and so on. So um, folks started already at a kind of a, a weak starting point in terms of how they could weather the recession. Those were the workers that were impacted the most. You know, it's interesting because we had discussions uh, here in this province, especially, Ricardo, over the last couple of years about programs that could and probably should be put in place to try to help people and lift them up, uh, like uh, living wage programs, things of that nature. Uh, and, and, of course, you know, various governments have given that a thumbs down, including this one that canceled the, the increase in the minimum wage that was supposed to be happening uh, the year they got elected as well. And we kept saying, okay, it's, that's bad enough, but, boy, if we hit tough economic times, it's really, really going to have a negative impact, and that's exactly what's happened. Yes, and, and so when then it finally happened, what we needed to do, what did we have to do? The federal government had to create an entire new program, the CRB, the SORB, um, to allow folks to, to get enough income support to get by, which was a great initiative, but also goes to show uh, how we prepared we were, that none of our existing programs were able to support workers through this crisis, right? This provincial social assistance programs weren't sufficient. Most people would never qualify. Uh, employment insurance, who is in, which is in place, was also not sufficient. Other kinds of housing supports and all of those programs, they weren't able to do the job. So we had to, you know, create this entire new thing practically overnight. It was hard to get going in the beginning, but they managed to iron out all the, the, the implementation mistakes. Um, so, so that really goes to, to say, you know, we need now to rethink what we need moving forward. Well, and we've seen the results of some government decisions and, and some of the programs that probably should have been in place that weren't. And I'm glad you brought up the idea of affordable housing because we've, as I say, talked at great length about uh, the tent cities that are being set up here in, in Hamilton and London specifically, the two cities that we're broadcasting. 
And uh, that's a, a direct result of, of people that are homeless. I mean, you know, okay, the SERB benefit is great, but that's being phased out. I, I know the Premier put a moratorium on evictions uh, when the, the shutdown happened, and that was good, but that's coming to an end, too. And mm-hmm. people are losing the roof over their head, and they don't have any money, and they can't afford to find another accommodation. I mean, we are literally throwing people out on the street right now because of the economic crisis. Yes, and, and we turn out people on the streets at a time the government have mandated them to stay home. Which is, which is very sad and, and, and ironic in a way. Um, so I think what we have to think about moving forward is, um, so in the end of the month, um, we have estimated at our center that about 900,000 Ontarians uh, who are currently receiving CERB will not be eligible for employment insurance. Um, we expect the jobs to come back, and some of these folks will get employed again, um, but others won't. And so there's a big question looming, what's going to happen to them? Are they going to have some sort of income support uh, for the fall? Um, and the answer is, at this point, today, we don't know. They don't know, which is probably creating a lot of anxiety. Um, so that's moving forward. And But also we have to look at back, especially in the housing front, right? What happened to people who um, either didn't qualify to serve or for whom serve wasn't enough, or who tried to keep working and ended up making less than they would have made if they got served, that for whatever reasons they fell into arrears during the health crisis um, because the government had to take their jobs away. Um, is it fair to expect them to pay? Is it fair to expect them to come up with the money somehow? Is it fair to throw them out on the streets, right? So that's, that's a broader societal question that we have like um, those folks they fell into arrears for no fault of their own and now um, a lot of people are just going back to normal and expecting things to restart and, and kind of move beyond all of this um, but those folks you know they, they won't move beyond this anytime soon so we have to think about what's the fair thing to do here got about a minute left here the concern here though is for many people they're not going to go back to normal uh, even if they had a minimum wage job, whether it was you know working in a restaurant, whatever the case might be, it, even if that facility has reopened, uh, you know, it, whereas they be, before might have had 20 employees, they probably have eight or nine or ten now because they're not allowed to serve as many people. Ergo, they don't need as much staff. So, not everybody's going to go back to normal. And, and what happens to those people? Yeah, that goes back to what I was saying earlier about this being a different type of recession, right? So, in previous recessions. Um, the goods producing sectors were affected more, which means that people who had probably good factory jobs uh, with you know, decent wages and some benefits and pension and all of this, they were hit the most. And it often happened when they weren't able to get their jobs back, they ended up finding not so good jobs um, as a replacement. So this is the classic in, in Hamilton and London, you'll be familiar with this, uh, people had good um, kind of jobs in the industry, ended up getting lower paying jobs in the service sector, um, but they had some sort of jobs. What happened right now is that those folks on the lower paying jobs got affected. And so what they, what's next for them, right? There's not necessarily, like, they can't go any farther down. Um, so what we're going to see is likely to see even more gig work, even more part-time work, even more get a shift here, get a shift there kind of work. 
because that's that's kind of the next frontier in terms of, of bad jobs. Well, governments um, so, governments have some challenges ahead of them to try to address some of these problems. We're just about out of time on this one. Uh, Ricardo, we'll stay in touch with you as, as this evolves over the next little while and some of these programs expire uh, because it is going to have a dramatic impact on communities. I do appreciate your time today. Thanks so very much. Thank you, and have a great day, you all. You too. Ricardo Tranchip, Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Political spectrums start today. The Democratic Convention, uh, not too long after this, of course, the Republican Convention, all, of course, towards the uh, November 3rd uh, general election in the United States, uh, with uh, Donald Trump seeking re-election, and, of course, Joe Biden, uh, who will be confirmed later this week as the Democratic nominee. But it's a different set of uh, circumstances now for conventions because of COVID. It's going to be done virtually. And, uh, well, what kind of an impact is that going to have on the process, and what kind of impact is it going to have on the American people? Joining us to talk about this is Reggie Cicchini. Reggie is Washington producer and correspondent uh, with Global News in Washington. Reggie, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Good morning. Let's talk about the impact that this is going to have. We'll talk about the the, the layout in just a couple of seconds, but uh, this is a different beast altogether. For those of us that have watched past conventions, Reggie, and you've covered a bunch of them over the years on both sides of the border here, you know, it's the hoopla, it's it's the, the balloons, it's the parties, it's the, the signs, uh, the cheering that goes on. That's all missing on that. What, what kind of an impact do you think that's going to have on the convention itself? It is missing. Uh, but look, this is a new era that we're in right now. This is the COVID-19 era that really has kind of flipped everything from day-to-day life to the U.S. political uh, election process upside down. So nobody really knows what to expect from what's going to take place virtually over the next few days. You're right. We don't have those big spectacles of the media scene and the balloons and the, and the political jockeying on the floor as they try to get their nominees in place and they try to build up to that acceptance speech. This is going to be a first. Uh, and whatever happens today, we can either see keys being taken uh, and handed over to the Republicans so they can understand how to do things semi-virtually. But this could also be a, a way for things to move forward and potentially more things go virtually uh, uh, as we go on you know, down the, down the calendar years. But also potentially we can see maybe these conventions don't need to be the big spectacles that we've seen over the last century or so. They roll out the big names, though. This is the all-star lineup, right? And it's very strategic who does what on what particular day. Of course, the the nominee, Biden, of course, will speak last, and and Kamala Harris probably the day before that. Uh, But the opening night's always interesting, and there's a a wide array and a wide variety of Democrats that are going to be speaking today. Absolutely, they're going to be. And there's going to kind of be what the Democrats are using as an anti-Trump coalition to be able to bring together uh, voters from all political stripes. We have Bernie Sanders, who's expected to speak today. Obviously, uh, he failed twice to become the president in 2016 and in 2020, now standing firmly behind Joe Biden. But he's, uh, but another speaker tonight is also uh, expected to be Republican uh, or uh, former governor of Ohio, John Kasich. That kind of ability to say, look, Joe Biden is somebody who's willing to work with Republicans. He can try to draw in those weary GOP voters that may not want to vote for Donald Trump and try to pitch Joe Biden as that moderate middle candidate as somebody who could lead the country and work with both sides. So these are big speakers that are expected to hear from tonight, including, uh, you know, the high establishment members like Michelle Obama, who closes out the speeches later on tonight. 
And, of course, Andrew Cuomo, who his star has risen considerably during COVID-19 for uh, the work that he's done as governor of New York State. But Kasich, I'm glad you brought that up, Reggie. He's an interesting choice. He, I, I looked at that as kind of representative of, of, of the disenchanted Republicans, uh, the, the Lincoln Project and others that are simply saying, yes, we're Republicans, but we don't want this guy back in the White House. Kasich, I don't know if Kasich is necessarily going to speak on their behalf, but I, I, I'm guessing they want his speech to resonate with those people. Yeah, look, this is that attempt to say, look, you may be Republicans, you may not be a part of this new Republican Party or a part of that old establishment Republican Party who wants to see things brought back to where they were and wants to attempt to try to rebuild some of those bridges that the president right now may have burned down, especially with those weary uh, Republican voters this coming November. So it's an attempt to say, look, this may not be your ideal candidate, but it is somebody who's willing to work with you in order to get the country back to the working order it was once in, at least in the eyes uh, of the political world. So it is uh, kind of a, a big moment for the Democrats to welcome a Republican on stage and say, you know, not only to the Republicans, but also to that kind of fringe progressive part of the left uh, of the of the Democrats to say, look, this is a candidate willing to work with all sides, no matter what your political stripe is. Reggie, are we going to get a clear picture as to how they're going to go after Trump? I mean, let's face it, he's given them a lot of ammunition over the last little while. Uh, but they seem to be alternating back and forth between COVID and the economy, which I, we understand are linked anyway. But uh, do, do they risk losing people if they start to, to contrast too many different things here? Or are they going to try to focus on one big issue? Well, I think that there's going to be one general focus, and that's simply going to be on Donald Trump uh, and, and the kind of history of Donald Trump's presidency and the legacy that simply doesn't exist in the eyes of Democrats that the president tries to tout, whether it's his handling or his you know, exceptional handling of the COVID-19 crisis, the way the economy uh, uh, tanked in preparation and because of the COVID-19 crisis, but also on the number of, uh, of things that the president simply didn't get done in his first term in office, up to and including uh, health care. We know the far left part of the Democratic Party is really pushing for a universal health care system. And there are some members of the moderate side of the party that are starting to embrace uh, that in the wake of COVID-19. So this could be a way to just take all of the Democratic ideals put them on the plate and say, here's what President Donald Trump didn't deliver. And that way they don't have to singularly focus on each and, you know, each and every potential failure that they see uh, of, of President Trump over the last several years. Reggie, CNN was reporting earlier this morning that uh, the polling that's been released over the last 24 hours or so uh, still has Biden in the lead in many of the categories, but uh, the gap is narrowing right now. Is there going to be pressure on, on, on Biden right now to ramp it up to try to, to, to bring more energy to this campaign? I think that there is. And I think that this is something we see uh, every election cycle is a wide gap between two uh, candidates. And then we start to see it whittled down as we head into the months before the election. You know, we're 78 days out to the November 3rd election. So there is still time for those numbers to shift around. But this is not something that's unexpected. Uh, and it simply is just one poll. That four point lead that Biden has over Trump uh, is different from the aggregate of the national polls, which still almost shows a 10 point lead uh, over Donald Trump for Joe Biden. Uh, but it's also important to look at state level polls. You have to look at these swing states in the Midwest and down into the South, where Joe Biden still is leading and sometimes outside of the margin of error. Those are the things that the Biden campaign is focused on right now uh, to say, look, we are drawing in voters. We may not have uh, you know, this, this massive lead over Donald Trump, but it is a lead heading into the final 80 days to the election. And that's something they're going to try to build on now as they head towards November.
I think they've learned. I think they've learned anyway from four years ago. Uh, there seems to be, at least on the surface, a lot more party unity than there was four years ago, Reggie. I mean, when Hillary won the nomination, uh, you know, Bernie gr- begrudgingly conceded that he was at the convention, but he kind of sat there all by himself. There didn't really partake a whole lot in this. He looked like one of the old men in the in the balcony there in the Muppet Show. Uh, but he's he's behind Biden. There seems to be some unanimity here, and all the other candidates, the the Buttigiegs and and those that Klobuchar's that that tried to take a run at this job, uh, are are there, and they're all going to be speaking, and there's going to be a lot of gland hatting. It's it's a different atmosphere than I think we saw four years ago. It is a different atmosphere, and four years ago, we have to remember that it was an open presidency. There was no incumbent, so both parties were trying to kind of jockey for the position to be the one who would take that win. Now Democrats have seen four years, or almost four years, under Donald Trump, uh, and as opposed to, to kind of putting their divisive politics inside that singular party on the table to say, look, we're still fractured, we're still broken— they're gathering together to say, look, we do have ideological differences within our party, but we can come together as one party to try and defeat Donald Trump and bring ourselves to power. What it does is it allows Joe Biden to rise to the presidency. Then that infighting within the party can work itself out and see whether or not they can pull Joe Biden in, see whether or not they're able to put their, their priorities and their interests into the hands of Congress and ultimately into the hands of the president. But right now, it's just one bridge being built across the, the entire Democratic Party to be able to walk in one singular file over and say this is what we need to do and ultimately that's defeat donald trump i, I think when we talked uh, a few days ago there was, that was just around the time that trump had raised the idea of, uh, of kamala harris uh, whether or not she was qualified uh, by nature of her birth to actually be a vp candidate uh some white house staffers over the weekend admitted that yeah she's she's legitimate so i, I guess this is one of these things where they're just trying to throw stuff against the wall and see what sticks uh, you don't know what's going to come next uh but they're still trying to maintain that this is a, a left of center, an extreme radical left of center ticket. Is that is that resonating with anybody? Well, I mean, it's resonating with Republicans. And you're right. Look, they're trying to to create this Obama birtherism story underneath uh, uh, underneath Kamala Harris, who is an American citizen. Her parents, yes, were immigrants, uh, but she was born uh, on American soil. That gives her the the 100 percent ability to become the president, or at least the vice president, uh, the issue right now is that Donald Trump isn't pushing back on that. He's not denying those allegations. He's simply just kind of letting them fester and hope that they, uh, that they go away. But when it comes to how Kamala Harris is being viewed, you know, this is a party who said that she was too tough uh, as being a, a vocal critic of the president's appointees, but also said that she was too tough when it came to uh, being the attorney general in California. So they're really draw- they're grasping at straws here to try uh, and find something that they can discredit Kamala Harris, saying that she's, you know, the most, the most radical, the furthest left within the Senate, which obviously simply isn't true. You know, you, if you put Kamala Harris standing next to Bernie Sanders, you'll see that she's far more uh, to the right and center than someone like Bernie Sanders is. But the, the GOP is just doing what they can because there's so little time left now to draw some kind of criticism of Harris. Uh, Reggie Cicchini in Washington uh, reporting for Global News. Reggie, thanks for the update. Of course, we'll be watching for your uh, updates and your reports uh, through the course of the convention on uh, Global National. Uh, Stay healthy and stay well, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Take care. Reggie Giacchini, of course, in uh, Washington as the Democrats get ready. Republican convention a couple of weeks away from there. And theirs is supposed to be virtual once again, although Trump is still saying that he's, his uh, acceptance speech, of course, for the nomination uh, is going to be a, a rather grand experience. And we'll see just what they would decide to wind up with and present to the American public. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.